0: Hello listeners, this is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm not. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 189 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, John Glenn, remembered. Roger, zero-J, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. With the passing of John Glenn last week, I thought it would be appropriate to pause my coverage of Apollo 10 for a week and create an episode that celebrates the life of the American icon John Glenn. I covered John Glenn's Mercury flight in episodes 30 and 31. I'm going to re release those episodes over the next two days so I won't spend a lot of time on his Mercury flight in this episode. That will be covered tomorrow. John Herschel Glenn Jr. was born on July 18, 1921, in Cambridge, Ohio. John's father owned a plumbing company, and his mother was a schoolteacher. Glenn was raised in nearby New Concord with his adopted sister, Jean. He attended New Concord Elementary School as well as New Concord High School until he graduated in 1939. He eventually received his Bachelor of Science degree in engineering from Muskingum College, also in New Concord. Years later, Muskingum College also awarded him an honorary Doctorate of Science degree in engineering. In fact. Glenn has received honorary doctoral degrees from nine colleges or universities. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live In infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. When the United States entered World War II, Glenn quit college to enlist in the U.S. Army Air Corps. However, he was not called to duty, and in March 1942, he enlisted as a U.S. Naval Aviation Cadet. He went to the University of Iowa for pre-flight training, then continued on to Naval Air Station Olathe, Kansas, for primary training. During advanced training at the Naval Air Station Corpus Christi, he accepted an offer to transfer to the U.S. Marine Corps. Upon completing his training in March 1943, Glenn was commissioned as a second lieutenant. After advanced training at Camp Kearney, California, he was assigned to Marine Squadron VMJ-353 and flew R-4D transport planes. In July 1943, he was posted to the Marine Corps Air Station El Centro in California, where he flew the F-4F Wildcats and the F-4U Corsair. In October of 1943, Glenn was promoted to first lieutenant, and in January forty-four, he was shipped out to Hawaii. In June, he was stationed in the Marshall Islands, where he flew 59 combat missions, bombing and strafing Japanese positions in the area. He was hit by anti-aircraft fire five times and was awarded two distinguished flying crosses and ten air medals. After the war ended, Glenn returned to the United States. He was assigned to Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point in North Carolina and then to Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland. He was promoted to captain in July of '45, shortly before the war's end, but was still unsure as to whether he would receive a regular commission in the Marine Corps. He received orders to return to Cherry Point, where he joined VMF-913, another Corsair squadron. There, he was finally informed that he had qualified for a regular commission. In March of 1946, Glenn was assigned to Marine Corps Air Station El Toro in California. While there, he volunteered for service with the occupation in North China, believing that it would be a short tour. He joined VMF-218, yet another Corsair squadron, which was based at Nanyan Field near Beijing. He flew patrol missions until VMF-218 was transferred to Guam in March of 1947. He finally returned home in December of 48. He was then posted to the Naval Air Station Corpus Christi, Texas, initially as a student and then as a flight instructor. In July 1951, he was sent to the Amphibious Warfare School at the Marine Corps Base Quantico in Virginia for a six-month course. He was then posted to the staff of the Commandant Marine Corps Schools. Glenn was given only four hours a month of flying time. He maintained his proficiency and flight pay by flying on the weekends. In July of 1952, Glenn was promoted to major. In October, Glenn was ordered to South Korea during the final stages of the Korean War. On February 3rd, 1953, he reported to K-3 where he was assigned to VMF-311, one of the two marine fighter squadrons there, as its operations officer. VMF-311 was equipped with the F-9F Panther Jet fighter-bomber and was assigned a variety of missions. Glenn flew his first, a reconnaissance flight, on February 26, 1953. In total, he flew 63 combat missions in Korea with VMF-311, gaining the nickname Magnet Ass from his alleged ability to attract enemy flak, an occupational hazard of low-level close-air support missions. On two occasions, he returned to his base with over 250 holes in his aircraft. Before leaving for Korea, Glenn had applied for an inter-service exchange position with the United States Air Force, flying the F-86 Sabrejet fighter interceptors. He arranged with Colonel Leon Gray to check out in the F-86 at Otis Air Force Base in preparation. Glenn later wrote, quote, Since the days of the Lafayette Escadrille during World War I, pilots have viewed air-to-air combat as the ultimate test not only of their machines but of their own personal determination and flying skills. I was no exception. End quote. "In June of 53 he reported for duty with the 25th fighter interceptor squadron where he flew 27 combat missions in the faster F86 he shot down his first MiG-15 in a dogfight on July 12 of 53 a second followed on July 19th and a third on July 22nd" in a fight in which a flight of four sabers shot down three MiGs. As it turned out, these were the last aerial victories of the Korean conflict, which ended with an armistice five days later. For his service in Korea, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross twice more and the Air Medal a further eight times. While he was still in Korea, Glenn applied for flight test training to become a test pilot. He reported to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River in January of 1954 and graduated in July. His first assignment was testing the FJ-3 Fury, a navalized version of the F-86 Sabre, which almost killed him. When the cockpit depressurized and the oxygen system failed, he tested the armament on aircraft such as the Vault F 7U Cutlass and the F 8U Crusader. On July 16, 1957, Glenn completed the first supersonic transcontinental flight. He flew 2,445 miles from Naval Air Station Los Alamitos, California, to Floyd Bennett Field, New York, in three and one-half hours. For this mission, Glenn received his fifth Distinguished Flying Cross. He was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel on April 1, 1959. He had now racked up nearly 9,000 hours of flying time, including approximately 3,000 hours in jets. In 1958, NASA began a recruiting program for astronauts, and Glenn met the requirements, but just barely. He was close to the age cutoff of 40 and also lacked the required science-based degree at the time. Glenn was on a list of 100 test pilots who met the minimum requirements to become an astronaut. The prospective candidates were screened, and the number of potential candidates was reduced to 32. These candidates were put through a battery of tests after testing the candidates had to wait 10 to 12 days to hear the results glenn had returned to his position at the navy bureau of aeronautics at that time when he received a call from the associate director of project mercury charles donlan during which he was offered a position as one of the mercury 7 he remained an officer in the us marine corps after he was selected in 59. After his selection, he was assigned to NASA Space Task Group in 1959, which was located at Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. The task force was moved to Houston in 1962 and became a part of NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center. Here is a clip of Glenn's introduction as a member of the Mercury 7. I'm John Glenn. I'm the lonesome Marine on this outfit, and I'm uh, 37. Uh, In answer to this same question a few days ago from someone else, uh, I jokingly, uh, of course, said that uh, I got on this project because it'd probably be the nearest to heaven I'd ever get, and I wanted to make the most of it. But uh, my feelings are that this whole project with regard to to space sort of stands with us now as, as If you want to look at it one way, like the Wright brothers stood at Kitty Hawk about 50 years ago. In November of 1961, a NASA representative announced to the press that John Glenn had been chosen to make the first manned orbital flight for NASA. The launch was originally set for January 16, 1962, but was delayed for over a month for various problems. On February 20, 1962, John Glenn became... The first American to orbit the Earth, Glenn was launched into space by the Atlas LV 3B launch vehicle inside the Friendship 7 space capsule. Godspeed, John Glenn. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Roger, the clock is operating. We're underway. Well and clear. Roger we're programming it roll okay. The spacecraft made three Earth orbits with Glenn piloting parts of the last two orbits manually because of an autopilot failure as the first American in orbit. Glenn became a national hero, met President Kennedy, and received a ticker tape parade in New York City, reminiscent of that given for Charles Lindbergh and other great dignitaries. At this point, Glenn became so valuable to the nation as an iconic figure that President Kennedy would not risk putting him back into space again. Glenn's fame and political attributes were noted by the Kennedys, and he became a personal friend of the Kennedy family. On February 23, 1962, President Kennedy awarded Glenn the NASA Distinguished Service Medal. Since Glenn was already 42 years old, it was unlikely that he would be chosen to perform a lunar landing, so he decided to resign from NASA on January 16th of 1964 and the next day announced his candidacy as a Democrat for the U.S. Senate from his home state of Ohio. But on February 26th of 64. Glenn suffered a concussion from a slip and fall against a bathtub. This led him to a draw from the race in March of 64. Glenn then went on convalescent leave from the Marine Corps until he could make a full recovery, which was necessary for his retirement from the Marines. He did retire on January 1st of 65 as a colonel and entered the business world as an executive for Royal Crown Cola. Through the years, Glenn remained close to the Kennedy family and was with Robert Kennedy when he was assassinated in 1968. Glenn was a pallbearer at Kennedy's funeral. In 1970, Glenn was narrowly defeated in the Democratic primary for nomination for the Senate by fellow Democrat Howard Metzenbaum. Metzenbaum eventually lost the general race to Robert Taft. In 1974, the Ohio Democratic Party wanted Glenn to run for lieutenant governor. Instead, he decided to challenge Metzenbaum again for the Senate seat vacated by William B. Saxby. In the primary race, Metzenbaum contrasted his strong business background with Glenn's military and astronaut credentials saying his opponent, quote, never held a payroll, end quote. Glenn's reply to Metzenbaum came to be known as the Gold Star Mother's Speech. Glenn told Metzenbaum to go to the Veterans Hospital and, quote, look those men with mangled bodies in the eyes and tell them they didn't hold a job. You go with me to any gold star mother, and you look her in the eye and tell her that her son did not hold a job. Quote. Many felt the gold star mother speech won the primary for Glenn. After defeating Metzenbaum, Glenn defeated Ralph Perk, the Republican mayor of Cleveland, in the general election, thus beginning a Senate career that would continue until 1999. In 1976, Glenn became a candidate for the Democratic vice presidential nomination. However, Glenn's keynote address at the Democratic National Convention failed to impress the delegates, and the nomination went to the veteran politician, Walter Mondale. Glenn also ran for the 1984 Democratic presidential nomination, but was once again defeated by Walter Mondale. In 1997, Glenn announced that he would retire from the Senate at the end of his then-current term. At this point, one might think that John Glenn's career was over. Except, on January 16, 1998, NASA Administrator Dan Golden announced that Glenn would be on the STS-95 crew. This flight made him the oldest person to fly in space at an age of 77. NASA and the National Institute of Aging planned to use Glenn as test subject for their research. Biometrics would be taken pre-, in-, and post-flight. Some experiments compared him to the younger crew members, for example, comparing their circadian rhythms. In addition to these tests, he was also in charge of the flight's photography and videography. John Glenn returned to space on the space shuttle Discovery on October 29, 1998, as a payload specialist. Here's the launch. T-minus 15. T-minus 10. 9. 8. We have a go for engine start. 5. 4. Three, two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff of Discovery with a crew of six astronaut heroes and one American legend. There were several of Glenn's contemporaries attending the launch. I have a clip here of Gene Cernan commenting. Here I... When I saw that uh, Peter, I changed my mind. I want to go. <laughs> you told me the other day you didn't want to go. Been there, well, done that. You said. I, no, I, I changed my mind. I, I, I haven't done this, so I, I think I want to go. I want to get in line. I really wonder what John's thinking now. He's just got to be. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I can't get into his head, but I want to ask him when he gets back. And finally, here is Payload Specialist Number Two, John Glenn, on the flight. Hello, Houston. This is PS Two. I mean, let me out of the mid-deck for a little while. We're just going by Hawaii, and that is absolutely gorgeous. And roger that. Glad you're enjoying the show. Boy, enjoying the show is right. This is beautiful. The best part is to do a trite old statement, zero G, and I feel fine. Yeah, Beam, I just want the record to show that uh, we've just passed four hours, 55 minutes, and 23 seconds, and uh, I promise I'd take Senator Glenn on the his second flight, make it a little bit longer than his first flight, and we've already accomplished that. So uh, we're much of smiling faces up here. Glenn stated in his memoir that he had no idea NASA was willing to send him back into space when the announcement was made. His participation in the nine-day mission was criticized by some in the space community as a political favor granted to Glenn by President Clinton. In a 2012 interview, Glenn said that the purpose of his flight was to make measurement and do research on himself at the age of 77, comparing the results on himself in space with the younger astronauts and maybe getting insights on the immune system or protein turnover or vestibular functions and other things. He regretted that NASA did not follow up on his research about aging by sending more people from this age range into space. Upon the safe return of STS-95, Glenn and his crewmates received another ticker tape parade, making him the 10th person to have received multiple ticker tape parades in a lifetime, not including sports teams. While Glenn was preparing for his shuttle flight, he had the opportunity to work with the first female shuttle commander, Eileen Collins. Collins was interviewed recently on the Fox News channel, and here is a small excerpt of her comments on John Glenn. Well, I actually got to know him when he came to NASA in uh, 1997-98 when he flew on the space shuttle. I remember uh, little stories about him. Uh, For example, when he... When he was presented with the medical experiments, you know, he was to be the oldest person to fly in space. And the NASA medical researchers had all of these, they had probably uh, dozens, hundreds of experiments they wanted to do on him. Well, he volunteered for everything, which of course he couldn't, they had to tell him, you can't do all that because mm-hmm. there just isn't enough time. So he, you know, I, I admired his ambition, I admired his dedication to the mission. He wanted to do as much as he could, and he wasn't just there for, for himself, to draw attention to himself, he really wanted to do the right thing for the space program, and I think that's something that that all of us should, you know, emu- try to emulate and try Absolutely. to be like him. In May 1999, NASA's Lewis Space Research Center in Ohio was renamed the John H. Glenn Research Center at Lewis Field. Over his long career, Glenn received numerous special honors. I will name a few. He received six distinguished flying crosses, the Air Medal with 18 clusters, the Navy Unit Commendation for Service in Korea, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the American Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, the China Service Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, the Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Service Medal, the Korean Presidential Unit Citation, the Navy's Astronaut Wings, the Marine Corps' Astronaut Medal, the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. The passing of John Glenn last Thursday means that the Mercury 7 are all gone now. I thought it might be appropriate to remember them along with Glenn. Here are the feats the Seven are best known for and how they died. Gus Grissom was the first person to be launched into space twice. He flew on the second suborbital Mercury flight in 1961 and in 1965 piloted the first Gemini mission, which was also the first spacecraft to change its orbital plane. He and two others were killed in 1967 in a fire during a launch pad test of Apollo 1. Deke Slayton was chosen to be part of the original Mercury mission, but was unable to fly in 1962 because of an erratic heart rate. He became NASA's director of flight crew operations and was eventually cleared for spaceflight a decade later. Slayton died of a brain tumor in 1993 at the age of 69. Alan Shepard was the first American to journey into space. Shepard launched on May 5, 1961, aboard the Freedom 7 spacecraft. His flight was suborbital, rising to an altitude of 116 statute miles, before landing back on Earth. Shepard died in 1998 at the age of 74 from leukemia. Gordon Cooper flew on the final Mercury mission and became the last U.S. astronaut to fly alone in space. His Faith 7 capsule circled the Earth 22 times, and the mission lasted more than a day. His second trip to space aboard Gemini 5 in 1965 lasted eight days and set a new space endurance record for that era. He died in 2004 of heart failure at the age of 77. Wally Sherall became the first man to fly aboard all three of the United States' first three human space projects, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. He was command pilot on Gemini 6 in 1965 when he led the first spacecraft rendezvous by flying within one foot of the already orbiting Gemini 7. Sherall died of a heart attack while being treated for abdominal cancer in 2007 at the age of 84. Scott Carpenter radioed the now famous Godspeed John Glenn as his colleague was about to embark on the first U.S. orbital flight in 1962. Later that year, Carpenter became the second American to orbit the Earth And he died in 2013 at the age of 88 after suffering a stroke. And lastly, John H. Glenn Jr., the first American to orbit the Earth. He had been in declining health since undergoing heart valve surgery in 2014. He died on December 8, 2016.